Writing in Ebony in August of 1970, historian and political editor of the magazine Lerome Bennett Jr. remarked on the creation of the United States. A nation is a choice. It chooses itself at fateful forks in the road by turning left or right, by giving up something or taking something, and in the giving and the taking, in the deciding and not deciding, the nation becomes. And ever afterwards, the people and the nation are defined by the fork and that decision that was made there, as well as the decision that was not made there. For the decision, once made, engraves itself into the landscape, engraves itself into things, into institutions, nerves, muscles, tendon. And the first decision requires a second decision, and the second decision requires a third. And it goes on and on until one day the people wake up and discover that they are mad and corrupt and divided, and that they have built war and hate and blood into the very air they breathe. to episode one of the Ending the Myth podcast. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we are walking through historian Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth, in a quest to find the Ur-Facebook dad. <laughs> Thanks for rejoining us after our inaugural episode on the Frontier Thesis. Today, uh, we're going to take a, a, a slight detour, as we might have hinted in the previous episode, away from <laughs> Grandin. <laughs> <laughs> it took us exactly one episode to detour away from the yeah, book and talk about something love to else. Have that <laughs> uh, uh, possibly a sign for things to come. <laughs> if you were looking for like just like a nice little reading guide, who like someone who is normal and <laughs> just follows the chapters like they should. There's plenty of content in the book. Uh, you've come to the <laughs> wrong podcast for that. <laughs> yeah. So once again, we're correcting Grandin. I want to be clear on we this. We are correcting we are. Greg Grandin. And we're correcting the historical record. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're correcting the narrative. We're fixing his award-winning book by adding <laughs> chapters and pages. Yes. Yes. This is this is this is um we are Kanye tweeting I'ma fix wolves after <laughs> T Lop dropped. <laughs> we're right now i can attest uh we are currently in the locker room of the staples center yeah, uh, we yeah we're in the mercedes-benz stadium in atlanta <laughs> we're, we're we're lifting weights with all of our homies with the bulletproof vests on <laughs> but on on a more serious note we did want to take a slight detour to focus on the role of the slave system in shaping westward expansion and the american psychosis well we wanted to dive a bit deeper into the history of choices made and structures built to protect america's most lucrative industry and labor system in the first chapter of frederick jackson turner's the significance of the frontier in american history 
Turner takes time to scold his uh, fellow historian, Dr. Von Holst, back when historians had cool names. For, yeah. <laughs> Come on, bring it back. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He decides to scold Holst for dedicating six volumes of his seven-volume constitutional history of the U.S. to the history of slavery. So Turner chides him, when American history comes to be rightly viewed, it will be seen that the slavery question is but an incident. Whoops. Yeah. It's a whoopsie. No need to look at it. In 1935, W.B. Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction as an argument against the Dunning School that we talked about in the previous episode, and as a way against Turner's you know, complaint here with Von Holst that slavery, not an important part of American history. In Black Reconstruction, Du Bois describes the bucolic early America of the white imagination with its visions of democratic self-government, its, quote, endless land of richest fertility waiting to be given to self-reliant pioneers unafraid of man or devil. And then he adds, Then some unjust god leaned, laughing, over the ramparts of heaven and dropped a black man in the midst. It transformed the world. It turned democracy into Roman imperialism and fascism. It restored caste and oligarchy. It replaced freedom with slavery and withdrew the name of humanity from the vast majority of human beings. What Du Bois was saying is that the notions of freedom and democracy were impossible. A cruel joke in a country that built its economy, its wealth, its power on the backs of kidnapped and enslaved Africans. In short... As chattel slavery became the basis of the American economy, so too did maintaining it become the basis of the American state and accepting it the basis of American culture. Hmm. Economy. Base. Structure. <laughs> so let us just travel back to the earliest days of colonial America. In August of 1619, a Dutch man of war sailed up the James River to the Jamestown colony. It carried a cargo of some 20 Africans that had been pilfered from a Spanish slave ship. While the international slave trade had existed for a century, at this point, there was nothing unique about the arrival of Africans to the colonies. The ship's captain sold his cargo to indentured servitude to the colony. But this is also how the vast majority of white residents had arrived in Jamestown. You know, and perhaps from our vantage point today, we might imagine that the Jamestown colonists just immediately began putting up all of their Jim Crow signs, uh, you know, building a second water fountain next to the mm -hmm. original water fountain they definitely had, a second well next to the first well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the second that these new residents disembarked. But really, if anyone took special umbrage uh, with their new African residents, they didn't think to record it in any of their journals. Jamestown was a colony in need of laborers. And according to diaries from the time, the new African indentured servants quickly found themselves laboring alongside the white indentureds. Now, this wasn't going to last, and the first big moment in the development of slavery in the United States ends up being the trial of a man named John Punch. In 1640, three indentured servants fled their Virginia master and made their way into Maryland. They were quickly apprehended and returned to Virginia to stand trial. At the trial's end, two of the indentured servants had their length of servitude increased four years. John Punch received a different punishment. He was sentenced to, quote, serve his said master or his assigns for the time of his natural life here or elsewhere. John Punch, unlike his two colleagues, was African. And with this court decision, 
he had become the first African to be legally enslaved for life in the American colonies. And Virginia became the first colony to establish a legal distinction between Africans and Europeans. You see, the colonies still had a labor shortage, and it had not escaped the colonists' attention that African labor, kept in bondage, presented certain distinct advantages. In 1645, Emmanuel Downing sent a letter to his brother-in-law, John Winthrop, requesting that any people captured in the war against the Narangsa Indians be exchanged for African slaves, arguing that a, quote, stock full of slaves is required for the colony to thrive and for their children's children to see this great continent filled with people. Downing concludes by reminding Winthrop that they can maintain 20 African slaves for the same cost as one English laborer. The colonies had always had a labor shortage, and a realization was dawning that chattel slavery could be the solution. But for slavery to take root, legal and cultural institutions had to be developed to support it. So if chattel slavery is the base of the economy, then a superstructure of supporting institutions would have to be developed around it? Exactly. Uh, The economic base creates a superstructure, one of the core tenets of Marxism, uh, and is exactly <laughs> right. what we're seeing here. Boy, this guy Marx was really something. You know, here I am. I'm knocking myself out trying to make an analysis. Every time I come up with something, they give him the credit. That's <laughs> pretty good. And then I realized, then I realized something. That wasn't Marx. That wasn't Parenti. That was reality. That's what it was. And reality happens to be Marxist. So here's Lerone Bennett on the culture that slavery required and then precipitates through its continued existence. Nature does not create masters or slaves, does not create Negroes or whites. In order to make masters and slaves, in order to teach men to stay away from certain men and certain women, it is necessary to whip them, to maim them, to kill them. It is necessary to separate them by rivers of blood. But terror alone is not enough. One must condition the mind and the eye and the emotions. And the conditioning of one generation must be repeated in the next generation, and on and on, ad infinitum. The men who ran colonial America did not shrink from the cruel exigencies of this policy. Moving swiftly and ruthlessly, they began in the middle of the 17th century to separate blacks and whites and to create a race problem in America. Very quickly, the legal system evolved to both define what a slave was and who could be a slave, creating a long paper trail mapping the simultaneous development of the American economy and American racism. In 1662, the Virginia colony passed a law determining the freer slave status of children based off of their mother's status, establishing for the first time that people could be born into slavery that slavery would be the, quote, natural condition of some. The first official codification of slavery came with the 1705 Virginia Slave Codes. Among other things, this legal code made a distinction between who can become an indentured servant and who can become a slave, clarifying previous laws where slave status was determined by religion and moving toward a system of race-based slavery. It made marriage between Christians and slaves illegal a first stab at social segregation designed to support segregation in the labor system. It made it illegal for a black person to, quote, raise their hand to a white person, crime punishable Mm. by 30 lashes. It prohibited, quote, Negroes, mulattoes, 
or Indians, although Christians or Jews, Moors, Mahatmatans, or other infidels, from purchasing a, quote, Christian servant, nor any other except of their own complexion. Again, moving away from religious examples to establish a race-based system of slavery. It is important to remember that race did not exist in the colonies as it exists today. Black people in the colony were far more likely to be described by their assumed religious status, Moors, Mahatmatans, Muslimen, etc., than by what we could conceive of today as their race. This presented a problem for colonists who saw religious conversion as part of their mission, but wanted to maintain a stable, enslaved labor force. This labor system required a new, permanent definition of its labor force. And this new category of race was not immediately or universally accepted. In 1723, Virginia Colony passed a law denying voting rights to free blacks. The Crown was so taken aback by the law that Governor William Gooch, his name is literally <laughs> Gooch. Yeah. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, I know this is a serious topic, but motherfucker's name is Gooch. Come on. MF, MF really named Gooch, though. <laughs> uh, so the crowd was so taken aback by the law that Governor William Gooch felt compelled to respond to British inquiries on its purpose. The assembly thought it necessary not only to make the meetings of slaves very penal, but to fix a perpetual brand upon free Negroes and mulattoes by excluding them from that great privilege of a free man. Expanding on the need to deny black people civil rights as a way to separate them from other citizens, in 1770, Lieutenant Governor William Bull of South Carolina would warn against the dangers of allowing black people to testify in court proceedings, stating that placing Africans, quote, on a footing of equality with their masters as it might tempt slaves to make resistance and deter masters and managers from inflicting punishment with an exemplary severity which was so necessary in the slave system. Back in London, the British were not immune to the appeals of chattel slavery. A London merchant wrote a spirited defense of the slave trade in 1745, arguing that the French advantage in certain goods, sugar and indigo, is owned to, quote, their great care and our great neglect of the African trade. The slave system, quote, allows them to produce their commodities cheaper, and undersell England in, quote, all the foreign markets of Europe. He argues that in order to preserve the empire, England must, quote, stock our own plantations with greater plenty of Negroes and at cheaper rates than our rivals would be able to do. He then gets into the meat of the matter. Quote, but if the whole Negro trade be thrown into the hands of our rivals and our colonies are to depend on the labor of white men to supply their place, they will either soon be undone or shake off their dependency on the crown of England, for white men cannot be obtained near so cheap, or the labor of a sufficient number be had for the expense of their maintenance only, as we have of the Africans. Has not long experience shown that white men are not constitutionally qualified to sustain the toil for planting in the climates of our island colonies, like the blacks? Uh, a little foreshadowing here, Munya, uh, from an, definitely not saying that we recorded these episodes out of order, but I think the same arguments can be made about Texas in a few decades. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think, I think you might be right. That is interesting. <laughs> As Lerone Bennett noted in 1970, quote, 
The race problem in America was a deliberate invention of men who systematically separated blacks and whites and reds in order to make money. Yeah, and it's important to note that because I think sometimes people like to make the argument that these are just people of their time. And that yeah, they, well, they very just, common <laughs> turn of phrase you hear. Yeah, and that they're just accepting slavery because that's just what people did back then. And we're seeing right here from this London merchant, they're very clear about why slavery was a good idea, <laughs> you know, yeah. why they wanted to do it. So the institution of slavery quickly began to have a profound effect on the people in the American colonies. Writing in 1782, only six years after he penned, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Thomas Jefferson remarked that the relationship between master and slave, quote, was a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. He went on to describe how the slave owner's children, quote, catches the liniments of wrath, puts on the same airs in the circle of smaller slaves, gives loose to the worst of passions, and thus nursed, educated, and daily exercised in tyranny, cannot but be stamped by it with odious peculiarities. Yeah, it should be noted that Jefferson had no light touch with his own slaves. Along the rape of at least one of his slaves, Jefferson was not shy with ordering corporal punishment for his slaves. Records survive to this day of Jefferson having boys as young as 10 years old whipped at his nail factory to induce them to labor. When 17-year-old James Hemming was so sick that he missed three days of work at the factory, which was the only profitable enterprise at Monticello, he was whipped three times in one day until, quote, he could no longer lift his head. Such were America's enlightened founders. God. Yeah, and, you know, it's important to note that uh, Jefferson was doing this for the money. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That nail factory paid for his lavish lifestyle. And the thing is, is that Jefferson, he wanted the money, but he didn't necessarily want to see how it got made. Yeah, no, Jefferson, it's, it's really, I think, important to realize that Jefferson wanted to create a separation between what actually happened to make that money go to his pocket and the money actually going there, right? That separation is within even in his own house. So Jefferson went as far to make that distance pronounced that he actually created the dumbwaiter. And the dumbwaiter, for those who don't know, is like a small freight elevator, you know, that you like use like ropes to kind of like uh, pull up and down. It's usually intended to carry food from like floor one to floor two or however many floors you want. Um, yeah, it's like this little like gadget. Uh, but he also made that dumbwaiter so that he didn't have to see the labor that went into putting that food on the waiter. He didn't have to see the actual slave give that food to him. It, it just suddenly appears. And like, that's what makes him feel good. That's what actually what like let him exist in this contradiction of this idea of equality of man while being a slave owner. Um, he didn't have to see that labor actually go into it. He can just reap the benefits of it as well. He did not want to see the actual like, you know, dirty work that needed to be done for him to be that wealthy um, as, you know, a slave owner. Yeah, with the dumbwaiter, he literally wanted to eat the sausage without having to see how the sausage is made, if you will. Yeah. But 
it's that distance that allows these our founders to hold enlightenment philosophical ideas while at the same time engaging in rapacious capitalism yep exactly following the french and indian war britain received control over florida and spain this led to a boom in the colonial slave trade with georgia and the carolinas vastly expanding their slave populations this of course led to then georgia and the carolinas requesting land for westward expansion in 1770. The denial by the crown turns the colonies to the Republican side. The incident reveals one of the realities of the slave system. As Du Bois notes in Black Reconstruction, quote, For the sheer existence of slavery, there must be a continual supply of fertile land, cheaper slaves, and such political power as would give the slave status full legal recognition and annihilate the free Negro. The fear of the slave revolt dominated the elite imagination in colonial America, and fears of Indians were tied into that in that they thought they might instigate said slave revolts. After 23 slaves burned down a building in New York City in 1712, 20 slaves, including a pregnant woman, were burned at the stake, and another was, quote, broken on the wheel by colonial officials. Governor Hunter explained that the executions were, quote, the most exemplary punishment inflicted that could possibly be thought of. In 1741, colonial officials in New York hanged 17 slaves and burned 13 at the stake in order to quench rumors of a slave plot to, quote, burn down the city. Yeah, I wonder why they wanted to burn down the city. Like, if that, <laughs> like, uh. Hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. And it's worth noting that that slave plot it is a uh, it's a definite question as to whether it actually existed. Mass executions yeah. Oh, yeah. due to manias around slave plot slave plots were as frequent as uh, executions around actually existing plots. This is the sort of state of uh, the state of constant preparedness and fear that people lived in at this time, right? Yeah, and it's telling on themselves. Like they know how. I mean, like in the subconscious, at the very least, they know how unjust and unequal and oppressive and brutal the system that they're participating in and that they're benefiting is from. It's like, why would you just jump to the conclusion that they want to burn down the city? That doesn't just happen. You know, that come that comes from somewhere. And I think that you know, just those rumors flying or them coming to that conclusion or them like being afraid that black people are just like congregating together. Mm -hmm. I think says a lot. Yep. Tells you everything they know about what they actually believed that their slaves thought about them and what they actually believed about the slaves. Uh, rumors of the French conscripting slaves and Indians to rebel against whites during the French and Indian War helped to solidify a growing connection between Indian removal and the expansion of slavery in the minds of slave owners. This led to an advisor to the lieutenant governor of Virginia warning of the, quote, saving and caressing of all the Negroes by the indigenous population for the purpose of an insurrection with, quote, the most serious consequences. Suddenly, Indian removal became a great concern of cosseted white planners far from the colony's expanding frontier. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but this is going to be part of the crisis of the 1830s of states like Georgia demanding Indian removal to move their plantations west. That will lead to, uh, I guess, Donald Trump's favorite president, Andy Jackson. We had the greatest election. In all fairness, I used to hear Andrew Jackson. 
This was now greater than the election of Andrew Jackson. People say that. No, people say it. I'm not saying it. <laughs> Riding into power. Oh, yeah. So why do we bring this up? Why even talk about all this? And most importantly, how does this relate to CRT? Now, <laughs> <laughs> so there's been criticism about mentioning things like you know, slavery is in the DNA of, or racism's in the DNA of America. And I think at its best, you know, academic, you know, pursuits like CRT or even the, you know, uh, Marxist histories of America, like W.E.B. E. Du Bois was writing. Right, and, and CRT is critical race theory, by yes. the way. Yeah, the mania of critical race theory uh, might be over by the time you listen to this episode, because <laughs> these things only last about a month at a time. Um, but the goal of these sort of histories and these fields and these pursuits was to look at how the foundational economic system of the United States, the most dominant economic system in the country, which was chattel slavery, how that shaped the legal, civic, and cultural structures of the United States in very profound ways that still remain with us today. Things like the fact that the very first police force in the United States, the first formal police force, was the Charleston Guard, created to suss out and put down potential slave revolts. Of course, slave patrols become the first sort of wide-scale police force used in the United States. It also affects things that are just written into the very legal structures of this country, like the United States Senate's existence. Mm. <laughs> you know, the yes. proportionment of senators so that states with, I don't know, smaller populations of citizens might have a outsized say in how the country is run is a direct result of slavery and the desire to protect the institution of slavery. How the president is chosen, the electoral college, how it's apportioned, is again a direct result of appeasing southern states, giving them a bigger voice in how the country runs in order to maintain slavery. The states in which slavery was the economy in that state only cared about slavery. That is why they chose these things. And we still live with them today. And that is why it's important to talk about this stuff, because it is literally built into the bones of the country itself. Objectively. This, of course, doesn't mean that there isn't contingency in history, that there isn't chances to take another road, as we're arguing in this very episode. There were chances. There was the Civil War and Reconstruction. There was the Civil Rights Movement. But if nothing else, the very fact that the Constitution still exists is evidence that those were not successful revolts. Those were not, that was not a successful overthrow of what America was and what America is. Right. To overthrow these structures, the whole Constitution and just fundamental. Bare minimum. What we call DNA <laughs> needs to be thrown out. Yeah. Bare minimum is the Constitution needs to be thrown out. Yeah. Uh, the Constitution had to go. Policing would have to look significantly different in this country if uh, not gone altogether. Uh, yep. With those things still intact, you can be sure that uh, racism remains in our DNA. That's facts. And as the slave system developed and expanded, it really came to require four things. So the first is that slavery required westward expansion into new fertile lands and emptied the indigenous population. 
So the demand for more plantation anchorage essentially made it so that they had one choice, which was to move west. But remember, it's not like there was just uh, indigenous people just kind of roaming around aimlessly. These are real developed, advanced communities that required their dispossession in order to take. Like it required a lot of military force and might and violence uh, for that to happen, right? Um, and they were a legitimate threat to the slave structure. So westward expansion and dispossessing uh, indigenous population had to happen for slavery to keep existing. And it's important to remember the deeply held belief by planters, especially that indigenous populations would uh, spark slave uprisings or encourage slave uprisings means that you can't just push Indians off the land. It also leads to a genocidal mindset on their part as yep. well. And so in order for slavery to exist as well, there needed to be a theory of race and racial exclusion. And that's something that you have to teach. Um, as we noted above, racism is not something that is inherent. It is something that is constructed to build an exploited and hyper-exploited class hierarchy. So instead of having just like um, one African slaves, their color means that if they escape, they can't just blend in when they're in the North, they are still black. So if you enslave white people and they escape to the North, they will just blend in. Right. Um, so like the idea of race as a concept was a means to preserve slavery and to basically divide two, you know, working classes, right. And to sell the other class, which would be the, you know, uh, the white worker to say, Oh no, they're below you because of this race idea. Right. And then we can now exclude by race. It is a way to create another hyper oppressed class, yeah. which in the form of slavery. Yeah. And it's important to note that, you know, slavery was so shocking on its face. It's reality was so shocking on its face. There had to be an explanation of why it was okay and why it was okay to do it to somebody. Right. And racism becomes that explanation. And one of the things that, you know, is interesting about that is it essentially makes black people in the United States, the only defined racial category. Yep. They're literally legally defined into existence via slave codes and slave laws and that has a very profound effect on the american imagination on and how <laughs> america sees things and you know obviously a very profound effect on uh, a very large part of our population exactly right and so the third is just a general commitment to violence and a strong state focused on a repression of like large swaths of the population. Um, you need a strong state in order for slavery to survive. These ideas of a state just like grinded to is just like very limited functions. Um, you know, those functions still consist of a very, very strong repressive um, state because like no, just like one planter can just uh, control. You need to have general um, state control as well. Um, yeah, this is one of those yeah. things where libertarianism isn't going to work for the Deep South, right? Because the thing is, if one planter lets his control over a slave population slide, well, they could taint the populate the slave slaves in the next plantation over, right? And now they're in rebellion too, yep. right? 
And the thing is, is that in many of these states in the South, South Carolina, Mississippi, etc., the slave population is going to come to outnumber the white population. Yes. So this requires a very sophisticated apparatus of repression to not just exist in the case of a slave revolt, right, in order to put it down, but to try and sniff out and crush those revolts before they ever get to that stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need a strong state for that to happen. You can't just have one planter and their, you know, hired, uh, you know, slave patrol without any coordination. Um, That's a centralized federal, like, system uh, that needs to be backing this system as well. Yeah, and essentially this is what the break that leads to the Civil War is going to be about, is the South is actually going to demand a more federal system over the North, who's actually demanding states' rights. The yeah. South demands the Fugitive Slave Act be acknowledged by every state in the North. <laughs> the North <laughs> argues, no, we don't have to do that, most specifically no, Massachusetts. states should choose. Yeah, and when the Confederacy comes into being in its constitution, it actually is a very centralized state. With a very with almost all the authority of the state vested in the sort of central part of it, like the states actually lose most of the rights they had as part of the United States once they join the Confederacy. And again, this is all to maintain slavery. So this repressive apparatus, it's not just about racism. It's not just about maintaining a racial order. It's also about maintaining a labor order. So yep. what we're doing is we're creating in our legal structures and our civic structures and our cultural structures an idea of labor control that is going to be fundamentally different than in other places that don't have something like chattel slavery in them. And the fourth and final point on how the slave system developed and expanded and needed to be maintained was genuinely a disdain for democracy and other egalitarian values in favor of really like rigid social, political, and economic hierarchies. If democracy and slavery are completely at opposites, they are mutually exclusive things. You can either choose slavery or you can choose democracy. There can't be both that's happening at once because um, in order for uh, slavery to exist, there needs to be a swath of people who do not have rights. That is not democratic. That is just not what that is, right? And so the U.S. actually had to make a choice to say, do we want slavery or democracy? And they chose slavery. Um, these egalitarian ideas do not exist in the concept of an oppressive system of master and slave. And so, yeah, we can either have uh, class hierarchies. You can either have, um, you know, uh, political hierarchies. You can have an actual ruling class that has a lot of power over... Um, a lot of people, whether those are capitalists in the in the north, um, oppressing you know white wage slaves or um, chattel slaves getting oppressed by planters in the south, those are in direct contradiction to democracy. Yeah. And making it very clear, the U.S. was not a democratic place yeah. at all. And again, I mean, to get to the ultimate sort of causes and lead up to the Civil War. Uh, when Massachusetts, essentially, uh, people in Massachusetts say overwhelmingly, we're going to vote to uh, not acknowledge the Fugitive Slave Act, the South literally says, no, you can't do that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Some things can't be voted on. That's one of them. Nope. 
And this nope. is the uh, inherent contradiction that you're pointing to. Man. Yeah. And maybe reflect on how some things that you might cannot vote on today that you yeah. might not want that still happen. Yeah. Think about think what's, yeah, what's off the table <laughs> for yeah. the political discussion. <laughs> and maybe how those principles that we just described still apply today, quite possibly. So we wanted to conclude today uh, with another quote from Lerone Bennett in his article, The Road Not Taken. Step by step, fork by fork, option by option, America, or to be more precise, the men who spoke in the name of America decided that it was going to be a white place defined negatively by the blood and the bodies of the reds and the blacks. And that decision was made in the 1660s and elaborated over a 200-year period, foreclosed certain possibilities in America, perhaps forever, and set off depth charges that are still echoing and re-echoing in the Commonwealth. What makes it all the more mournful is that it didn't have to happen that way. There was another road, but that road wasn't taken. All right. Join us next week, and we'll discuss the push west and the policies of Indian removal. Another fun episode, I feel. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's all depressing all the time, baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The money's not to be on the cow's not to be on his freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate.
these days.